HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is being brought to you by Martha and Marley Spoon. Martha Stewart's best recipes and fresh ingredients delivered to your door. Get three free meals today when you use code HERITAGE at MarleySpoon.com. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. How did the food of the poorest Southerners become the signature trend of modern American oak cuisine? We're going to talk about that and a whole lot more today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And indeed, Southern cuisine seems to be all over the place lately, um, whether it's in uh, reviving heirloom seeds and grains or um, dishes that, uh, you know, the, the humble dishes that, that have suddenly become so wildly popular. But what do we really know? about those dishes, and more than that, about the people who cooked those dishes. Well, John T. Edge, a well-known and respected food writer of Southern cuisine, has devoted a lot of research and attention to his, for his new book called The Potlicker Papers, A Food History of the Modern South. And he's here to kind of trace that whole history for us. Welcome, John. Thank you so much. Thank I want to tell the, I want to tell our listeners a little bit about you. John is a contributing editor at Garden and Gun and a columnist for the Oxford American. 
In 2012, he won the James Beard Foundation's MFK Fisher Distinguished Writing Award. He's director of the Southern Foodways Alliance at the University of Mississippi, and he has you have written, and he, you, have written or edited more than a dozen books. You've served as a culinary curator for the weekend edition of NPR's All Things Considered, and you've been a regular columnist in the New York Times. It is, it, and it is a pleasure to read... Um, Anything you write, John, I have to say. John T. Uh, yes. John W. <laughs> um, and this book in particular, The Pot Liquor Papers, really captures something so unique, as it's been said, a groundbreaking social history of the South and Southern culture. Um, before we even get to what you wrote about, you're going to have to educate some of our and I hate to say northern, because that doesn't necessarily mean sure. northern people don't know, but tell them a little bit about what Pot liquor is metaphorically and, and actually, and um, and why that has become kind of a moniker for you and been the title of this book. Sure. Um, so when you cook a pot of greens or beans, less frequently beans, but nonetheless, when you cook a pot of greens down, mustards or turnips or collards, and you cook them low and slow with a turkey neck um, or a ham hock or any other kind of flavoring meat bobbing in it. And after they cook low and slow, the liquid kind of distills down, the liquid in which those greens cooked distills down and kind of gathers, coalesces at the bottom of the pot. And that liquor um, that distills down at the bottom of the pot is, as you might imagine, the pot liquor. Um, and and there's um, a lot of different ways to think about that liquor. Um, in in one frame, we might think about um, the antebellum South before the Civil War, during the days of slavery, when um, slave masters oftentimes um, would um, keep the greens from the pot for themselves and deign um, to give the liquor um, to the enslaved and without knowing that um, the nutrients leached out and the nutrients actually reside um, in the bottom of the pot, um, the nutrients actually resided um, in that liquor. Um, so there's a subversiveness in that knowledge of the enslaved in opposition to to the slave masters. Um, and, and then there's also the way that pot liquor crumbled over cornbread, um, has sustained working-class white and black um, mm-hmm. through years when the South was um, a, a poverty-wrecked um, and oftentimes poverty-ruined place. Um, and I got one more. Uh, <laughs> okay, keep the, going. <laughs> the third is the kind of metaphorical um, value of that food for me as a writer, and that metaphorical value is in... Um, the notion that when you write a book like I've attempted, um, covering 60 years of, of the South's history from 1955 to 2015, you've got to, um, to condense that story. You've got to find um, the heart of that story. And in a way, what you're doing is you're boiling down a pot of greens um, to its essence. Um, and for me, that's the metaphorical possibility of pot liquor. The pot liquor is the, the essence at the bottom of the pot. It is the, 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 the story at the bottom of the pot. Um, it is the essence of what Southern food can tell us about the South and about Southerners and about America and about Americans. 
Right. Well, that, a really long answer to your question. No, I, I, and I loved it. I mean, I would have I would have asked you to say exactly that in exactly that way because it it, it you really you know answered the question perfectly. Uh, and so now we get down to the book you've chosen to write um, a food history of the modern South, and talk to us about that period that you chose and and sure. why that was important to you. Yeah, I'm I'm weary to hell of reading about the Civil War. Um, <laughs> I've just kind of had it up to Okay, here. that's it. We don't have to go any further. Uh, <laughs> to be frank, um, I, mean, I, I recognize the, the horrors of that moment and the the battle joined was deeply important. And yet, um, you know, I, as a, as a Southerner born in 1962, as someone who kind of came aware of politics and, and civil rights, um, and um, the the fight toward a better South um, in the late 1960s. Um, you know, I'm fascinated with that pivot as the South begins to change, um, and you know, as the kind of propulsiveness of the civil rights movement drives change in the South. Um, I recognize that 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 moment is the one that fascinates me, and, and that moment is ultimately a hopeful moment for the South. Um, that it might realize its potential, um, in and it might um, integrate fitfully, yes, but integrate and realize its potential. So, I chose to start the book in '55 with Montgomery bus boycotts because that is arguably um, a moment when the South moves toward a better. Self. Um, and um, I found a character um, about whom we can talk, if you like, that, uh-huh. that really encapsulates that. That's true. I would I would love to talk about the character. And I think it's so interesting, too, because um, that that time period you chose, I mean, and it just happens that here we are, you know, we are, the, but um, people whose ancestors were um, slaves are celebrating Juneteenth, which, yeah. of course, you know, is, is um, the freedom from from uh, slavery, and yet it, then again, it wasn't until the civil rights movement that they really then had to fight again for freedom. So it's, I think you, I think that's a very interesting turn you took, and I agree with your with your decision. Um, so tell me a little bit about this character that sort of personifies your your sure. your move in this book. Um, so Georgia Gilmore, about whom I write. Um, She's the character that opens the book, and there's a beautiful shot of her at Stove um, that opens Chapter 1. Miss Gilmore was a cook in Montgomery, Alabama um, during the 1950s and 1960s. Um, And Miss Gilmore um, also worked as a midwife. um, As uh, earlier in her life, she had literally laid track on the railroad. She was a woman of great um, physical strength and great emotional strength and great intelligence. Um, and Miss Gilmore, um, when um, the black citizens of Montgomery, um, inspired by um, Rosa Parks' refusal to step to the back of the bus, a great American moment that, that I hope we all know, um, when when um, when Rosa Parks refuses to step to the back of the bus, when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, assumes the mantle of leadership of the Montgomery Improvement Association, the organization that will drive the bus boycotts. Um, when those two things happen, um, Georgia Gilmore attends 
the first mass meeting um, of the Montgomery Improvement Association at Holt Street Baptist Church. Um, and these are meetings wherein, um, wherein victories are celebrated, strategies are plotted, um, community coalesces and strength is gained um, during these mass meetings with hundreds and sometimes thousands of African-American citizens of Montgomery gathering together. Um, and at that very first meeting, Georgia Gilmore attends, and she brings um, a hamper with her, one of those metal hampers that kind of have, kind of have the kind of swing handle yeah, on the top. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and she packs it with um, the tools of her trade, essence, the, the products of her trade. She packs it with fried chicken um, and with white bread. And her idea is to sell what amounts to fried chicken sandwiches um, at that mass meeting to raise money for the bus boycotts um, because she recognizes that if black um, cooks and maids and laborers of Montgomery are going to um, boycott the white-controlled city bus system, then this alternate transportation system they devise um, is going to require gas for the family sedans that ferry people around town, the church um, station wagons that ferry people around town, the buses, um, church buses that ferry people around town. Those new alternate conveyances are going to need gas, and eventually they're going to need brakes and um, perhaps different sorts of insurance policies. Um, So Ms. Gilmore um, leverages the skills that she had learned in her family kitchen and while cooking for whites in Montgomery. She leverages those skills um, to fry chicken and sell chicken. Um, And she continues that work um, with a group of women whom she deems the club from nowhere. Um, And that club from nowhere um, is comprised of women like her who want to contribute to the movement by baking cakes and pies, by by um, frying chicken, um, by leveraging their skills. Um, but Georgia Gilmore is the person who presents the money in church and says, you know, we raised $200 this week. She's the person who stands up, um, and she offers, by way of that club from nowhere, um, a kind of scrim of anonymity for the women behind her so that they um, can contribute but not risk um, retaliation from conservative white Montgomery um, so that they can contribute money but not lose their job or lose the lease on their house. Mm -hmm. Um, And this club from nowhere helps fuel the movement, both literally and um, by way of spirit, metaphorically. All right. And and it was a great story about Georgia. And, and, this is something that I, I like so much about the book because you do you use people like her and and her name and her background and actually rather than looking at this history through the lens of food as we always say you're really looking at the food of that period and what was what was driving forces and and the, and the culture and the history through the lens of these these people and their names and you've really managed to put a you know a face and a name to all of this which i think is is admirable you you mentioned that um you had that with your writing you were repaying a debt of pleasure um 
tell, expand on that a little bit about what you meant. Sure. Um, you know, I, I'm a white son of the South. I was born, you know, in the home of a Confederate brigadier general. Um, and um, I recognize um, as I've grown older, as I've spent more time thinking about my region and my love for my region and my genuine anger at um, many of the mistakes um, the leadership and of our region has made, um, I recognize that um, as a white son of the South, I have, as a writer, um, someone engaged in the world of food, I have a responsibility to tell as honest a story about my place as possible, mm-hmm. as inclusive a story about my place as possible. Um, I have um, a responsibility to, um, when writing about the men and women, um, the working class um, African-American men and women and and white as well, I have a responsibility to use their last name as well as their first when I mm-hmm. talk about them. Um, I have a responsibility to pay down a debt of pleasure and sustenance that is owed um, to those working class farmers and cooks and waiters and waitresses, um, and that by way of telling um, hopefully a more um, inclusive, full um, story of my region through food, um, I could pay down a debt that I owe, um, that I think we all owe. to those men and women. Right. That's my intent. Well, is this and this is this pretty much does this describe what you mean by being an active southerner? That's a little different. I mean, I, I, I it's a term I've been thinking about a lot. Um, you know, this brings us to really the close of the book, which the book comes to a close in 2015 at a moment when um, national political leaders um, are um, by way of intimidation and threats of legislation, um, uh, attempting to thwart what is becoming a truly multicultural South and a truly multicultural America. Hmm. Um, and, you know, as someone, I mentioned, I was born in Georgia. Um, my wife and son and I now live in Oxford, Mississippi, have for 22 years, I have. Um, you know, I was born to the South. I'm a passive Southerner. I, you know, I, I claim this place, and this place claims me by way of mere birthright. Um, in this moment, when Southern food is the product of people of color, and these people of color are often now Mexican American and Central American, um, and when I travel, say, the Mississippi Gulf Coast or the Louisiana Gulf Coast or the Texas Gulf Coast, and I recognize the imprint of Vietnamese Americans on those places. Um, there are examples of this kind of beautiful and rich ethnicity everywhere. Um, I recognize that um, those newer arrivals to the South are the active Southerners. They actively claim this place. They are making lives here, raising families, um, building careers, um, and oftentimes by facing down adversity, um, oftentimes um, against greater odds than I've faced, me, the passive Southerners. So 
you know, as my book comes to a close in 2015, um, I think about these newer Southerners not as immigrants, um, but as active Southerners who are who are claiming this place, gently reinventing this place, um, and bettering this place. In the process. All right. You you have been writing about um, food of the South for uh, quite a long time, and and um, often it's attached to you know barbecue and you know and and cornbread and some of the you know the the staples that many people identify with food of the south um but now you you really you say you want to, you're really writing more about the real food and 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 were criticized that you weren't writing writing about the daily meals and the real food but what how did you react to that I'm not sure I understand the question. The, well, the I'm not sure. Real foods, the well, I mean, you know, the daily food, the the daily, um, the daily food of the meals on the plate, and rather than what we have taken to identify as you know the, as all the the barbecue, um, and you know the ribs, well, of course, fried chicken too, um, as being the food of the South, the only food of the South, and I think um, certainly by bringing up pot liquor in the title, you've you've kind sure. of dispelled some of that, that there's a lot more there than just what we, you know, what we attach to what goes in the picnic baskets in the summertime. Sure. I mean, yeah, I think there is a tendency in the national media um, and a tendency among writers, too, to write about um, foods associated with smoke and fire. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Barbecue is a special occasion food. Barbecue is a feast food. Um, Oftentimes, um, historically associated with um, plantation labor, especially in the north, uh, excuse me, in the in the the eastern reaches of a state like North Carolina, where whole hog barbecue remains popular. Mm-hmm. Um, those foods, like barbecue and fried chicken, are kind of totemic foods to the American South. And if you want to break them down, both those foods allow you to think and talk about race. Um, fried chicken also offers you an opportunity to talk about gender um, and about who gets the credit for fried chicken. Um, you know, one of the chapters of the book, I write about a woman named Natalie Dupree. Um, She's who, been on the show. Um, we know her well. In the 1970s and 80s and 90s, um, really drove um, an appreciation for the role of women um, in Southern kitchens. Um, and I think she's deeply important and didn't realize the import of it until actually was researching this book and that she, in a moment when um, many women were quitting the kitchen, she um, said to younger women um, that entrepreneurship possibilities lie in the kitchen, that they could build careers out of the knowledge they learned from their grandmother or mother, um, out of the skills they developed in their kitchens. Um, and she did that through Rich's Cooking School in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, and she did that through a television show called New Southern Cooking. Um, so she's a great example of that. You know, it's not all about barbecue. It's not all about fried chicken. Um, it's about home cooks and their abilities and how they leverage them um, to both to feed their family and then also to um, to uh, become financially secure. Right, right. Yeah, uh, um, Natalie is a, a friend and she's been on the show um, and she does f- such great work with, with Southern food. It's it's a pleasure to, uh, 
to hear you say that about her. Um, so when you, what and I didn't quite understand what you meant when I, I guess I had read it in one of the, the reviews or one of your other interviews, and it was about um, intending to tell a history about the food that doesn't ghettoize the food. What, what actually did you mean by that? Huh? I don't know. Was that um, or was the, were those not your words? Um, I mean, here, <laughs> someone else's words. I mean, there's a bunch of different ways to think about that. I think that um, oftentimes when people write about the foods of working class people, they write it about it in a way that is um, that that has the taint of slumming about it, wherein um, the the high-minded writer steps off their perch to work among the common people and understand their food. Um, and I think that is kind of a ghettoizing of that food mm. um, and a ghettoizing of those people. Um, so that's something I, I really um, want to steer clear of. Um, the, the flip side of that is um, the kind of fabulization of Southern food, the kind of Paula Dean Baroque um, interpretations of Southern food that I think are, um, you know, just as damaging both calorically and culturally. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> uh, it's it's just such a, a book filled with so many um, wonderful stories and and you know uh, difficult changes that you highlight to the South and and uh, for the good and. The um, kind of the, the Southern food has really become this shared, um, I think, identification with America for many people. I think that, and I just said this the other day, I was talking to David Shields um, the other day, huh. and um, something that came up was that I, I think when, when people think of Amer- what is American cuisine, because we have such a hard time pinning that down, that right. oftentimes we just revert to food of the South it, because it's the most real thing, I think, that we can, that we can come up with that, is, that speaks about our people and who we are. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the complications of Southern food make it um, the most resonant of American cuisines. Um, you know, it is the embedded narratives um, about racism, about class difference about gender inequities, um, all those kind of American problems, um, American issues, um, are brought into relief when you take a close look at Southern food. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this moment, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, when Southern food is vogue, um, yes. you know, I think it's incumbent upon um, me as a writer, and I see you know similar work from people like Nicole Taylor um, and Michael Twitty um, and Ronnie Lundy and um, Marcy Cohen Ferris and David Shields. So many folks who um, who are saying by way of their writing and their advocacy work that if you're in love with Southern food, if you can't wait to eat your next. Um, fried chicken drumstick or savor your next barbecue sandwich, then please pay attention here because if you understand the narratives embedded in that food, the complexities embedded in that food, um, it will not um, it will not put you off your feed, but will <laughs> instead um, deepen your appreciation for that food. And I think 
we are in a moment in America when America is fitfully and finally recognizing the value of food culture. And the yes. first place many people go when they want to understand American food culture is they come south. I'm looking for something they believe real or honest or authentic. And I'm not saying that real, honest, authentic is what we got, um, but I'm saying that's what people come looking for. You're absolutely right. Yeah, definitely. There, I want to I want to continue on that thread with a specific question um, right after we come back from a real short break. So stay with us. Heritage Radio Network listeners, you love cooking quick, healthy meals on weeknights, but sometimes you get stuck when you don't have time for planning, shopping, and prepping. Or maybe you're short on new and interesting dinner ideas and dreading the trip to the grocery store. And who wants to haul all those bags home after a long day at work? Hmm, Not me. That's why I'm so excited to share Martha and Marley Spoon with you. They send seasonal, pre-portioned ingredients and Martha Stewart's best recipes right to your door. No grocery shopping, no schlepping. You can choose from 10 healthy recipes each week and get a delicious meal on the table in 30 minutes. How does it work? Simply go to marleyspoon.com, choose your delivery day, and select your dishes. It's completely flexible, so you can skip, cancel, or change preferences anytime. And some of the dishes that I tried, and they do change their menus every week, was a teriyaki steak with grains and peanut chicken and noodles. Really delicious. Interesting ideas that I wouldn't have thought of. And everything is packaged specifically for that recipe. You'll never waste food again. And best of all, it's so easy to use. With six beautifully photographed steps for each 30-minute recipe. Want to try it? Go to MarleySpoon.com and choose your meal plan now. On the checkout page, just type in the code HERITAGE for your three free meals. That's MarleySpoon.com. Enter code HERITAGE. If you want to hear the truth, you better take it to the street. Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm speaking with John T. Edge, the author of a new book, The Pot Liquor Papers, A Food History of the Modern South. And, uh, John, we were talking about <clears throat> the the modern writers now, and you mentioned uh, specifically um, uh, Marcy Ferris and Nicole Taylor and um, uh, Michael Twitty, all of whom have been on the show, and Nicole had a show on the network for a while. Yeah. Uh, and um, it's interesting because... You know, there is this this whole um, ownership of this culinary tradition. And, um, and in fact, I think something was mentioned in, in the blurb about your book that what you try to highlight is, is that access to the food and ownership of culinary tradition was a central part of this long march to racial equality. And now we have something that, you know, that is 
kind of one of those touchy topics, and it's always in the news, and it's um, not in the news, but in a lot of our conversations um, in the food world, and and that's cultural appropriation or culinary appropriation. Right. Um, so here you are, <clears throat> you know, a white boy, a white Southern boy, however, you know, talking about these foods and then this this mm-hmm. change in the South. Um, who owns the Southern food? I mean, <laughs> um, I don't believe that the apt question is about ownership. I believe the apt question is about um, how we as Southerners and Americans reckon with our tragic history um, and find truth and common ground at the table. So for me, the, the question is less about establishing ownership and marking out territory. Um, I think the, the, the question for me is how do we build a just and equitable food system, um, both in terms of culinary contributions and, and economic contributions. Um, and that's what I'm deeply interested in. Um, I think and hope that my book um, attempts to tell a fuller history of the South um, through food. I think the question of culinary appropriation is really a question of capital. So I think that term, um, culinary appropriation or cultural appropriation, is about power, you know, is, is a kind of touchstone to talk about power dynamics. Um, it's a touchstone to talk about capital and access to capital. Um, and I hope that soon we'll move past the questions about cultural appropriation to get at the questions of, you know, who has access to capital and how can we change access to capital mm-hmm. so that people of color um, get to tell their own stories without um, the mediation of a white um, controlled and dominant male and white controlled dominant media um, and how can people of color get access to capital to build um, the restaurants in which they own and are not um, uh, chefs but are chef owners um, I mean those questions start to get at the heart of all this matter um, I, I you know and I, I've had I've been a part of summits about this. I've talked about this a lot. I, I think that that um, those harder questions that get past you know, the, the signal words like cultural appropriation or culinary appropriation are the real tough conversations, and that's where I hope we get. Right. Well, I think your book certainly will help lead us there. I think the stories are are um, empowering to people's to, to people to learn. And acknowledge where this food comes from. What are the stories behind this food? Just acknowledge where it comes from. And, uh, and they, it's, it's really a compelling, a compelling book, I think, for our history as a country. And, Thank you. And I'm, I'm so glad you wrote it. And I am so glad, glad that you shared your time with us today to talk about it. I encourage everyone to take a look at this. It's called The Pot Liquor Papers. A Modern History of the, a Food History of the Modern South by John T. Edge. You'll know it by the turnip on the front of the cover. <laughs> you can't miss it, right? Okay. Thanks again, John. It was it was a pleasure to talk to you. 
Oh, thanks for the good questions. I appreciate it, and, and uh, um, good luck with the thank podcast going forward. Thank you so much, and thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past. As you may know, this show is only possible thanks to member donations, and we literally would not be able to reach out to you every week without the generosity of Heritage Radio Network members around the world. Yes, around the world. And now it's your chance to join the club because we are having our summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and it comes with limited edition summer swag like T-shirts and drink koozies and pins for your your jean vest or whatever. You can sign up for a one-time donation, or you can become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. And keep food radio on the airwaves all summer and going forward. Thanks for listening. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.